Section 19 of The Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18. The Protestant Succession. After the Great War, England was exhausted and glad of rest. From the Peace of Utrecht to the end of Queen Anne's reign, it may be said that there is no incident of historical importance except the events connected with the question of the succession to the throne, and of this the interest culminates toward the end. Bearing in mind what the revolution of 1688 wrought for England and what it prevented, it was felt to be important that its work should not be undone. During William's life the cause of the revolution, or to put it in other words, of constitutional government, had been quite safe. As long also as Anne should live, there was no danger. But the friends of the cause felt that there was a risk with respect to her successor. Immediately after the revolution, the Bill of Rights, the first statute of William and Mary, had decided that the crown should pass first to the heirs of Mary, then to Princess Anne and to her heirs, after that to the heirs of William by any subsequent marriage. But toward the end of William's reign, when Mary had died childless, when it was evident that William would not marry again, and when the death of the Duke of Gloucester, the only one of Anne's numerous children who reached even boyhood, had disappointed the hopes of the nation, new steps were taken to secure the succession in safe hands. By the Act of Settlement, passed in 1701, the provisions of the Bill of Right were strengthened by the Declaration that upon failure of heirs to Anne and William, the Electress Sophia was to succeed, and that her claim should pass to her heirs. As her grandson was a grown man, it seemed as if heirs in this line would not be likely to fail. The principle upon which the Parliament, both in the Bill of Rights and in the Act of Settlement, proceeded was that of selecting the nearest heir to the English throne who was a Protestant. It was stipulated as a further security that the sovereign must be in communion with the Church of England. There was no descendant of King Charles I who satisfied these conditions. If there had been, the English people, with their affectionate memory of him, would have very much preferred such an one. But besides the family of James II, Henrietta Maria, alone with the children of Charles I, had left issue but as she married the Roman Catholic Duke of Orléans, their children were excluded from the English crown. In order, therefore, to find a satisfactory successor for the throne, it was necessary to turn to the descendants of Elizabeth, sister of Charles I. Her name takes us back some distance in English and in continental history. When her father, King James I, ascended the English throne, uniting the crowns of England and Scotland, she was a little girl not quite seven years of age. She grew up a very beautiful princess whose praises poets sang, and wearing whose colours soldiers of fortune were ever ready to fight. Her hand was sought for a dauphin of France, but without success. She was not seventeen, when in February 1613 she married Frederick, the Elector Palatine of the Rhine, whose capital was Heidelberg. 
From that time forward her life was stormy and full of trouble, intimately mixed up with the early part of the disastrous Thirty Years' War, then with the difficulties of her brother Charles and his house. But living through these, she survived the Restoration, and came with her nephew to England, dying two years after it in London. Elizabeth's husband, Frederick the Elector Palatine, was elected King of Bohemia by the Protestant party in that country. But the House of Austria had regarded the process of election as a mere form, and claimed that the succession to the crown of Bohemia was theirs. A war was the result. Germany at that time being in a state of disunion and hostility between the two great religious parties, the war became a religious war, and continued to spread until the dispute about the succession in Bohemia had set the whole of Europe in a flame. But the first portion of the Thirty Years' War was entirely a triumph for the House of Austria and the Roman Catholics. Not only was Bohemia in a few months wrested from the hands of Frederick, called in derision the Winter King, but he was driven forth an outcast from his own hereditary dominions, and his electorate was given to the Duke of Bavaria. At the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, part of these dominions was restored to Frederick's family, and an eighth electorate established to avoid disputes. Frederick and Elizabeth had a large family, the electress Sophia who inherited her mother's claim to the English crown coming twelfth out of thirteen. Amongst her elder brothers and sisters, two have names famous in English history, Prince Rupert and Prince Maurice. Prince Rupert, who commanded the right wing of the Royalist army at the Battle of Edge Hill in 1642, and whose impetuous charge carried that wing triumphantly forward, regardless of the rest of the battle, was brother to the Electress Sophia, who, if Queen Anne had died in the spring of 1714, instead of in the summer, would have been Queen of England. His impetuosity led to the defeats of Marston, Moore, and Naseby, and to the surrender of Bristol. The license in plundering which he allowed his soldiers was a reminiscence of his early experience in the German wars. After the conclusion of the Civil War, Prince Rupert had distinguished himself, first as a naval commander, and later in the domain of science. The Electress Sophia was born at The Hague in 1630, some three months after Gustavus Adolphus landed in Germany. She married Ernst Augustus, titular bishop of Osnaburg, Duke of Brunswick-Luneburg, who in 1692 was raised by the emperor in return for services rendered to the dignity of Elector of Hanover. Sophia had her mother's beauty and was remarkable for the evenness of her temper and for her acquirements. When English ambassadors came to her, they found that she spoke English as fluently as themselves, but she was equally well versed in other languages, in French and Italian as well as in Dutch and German, about which there might be a dispute which should be called her native tongue. At first she was not particularly eager to accept the succession to the English crown. When the Act of Settlement was passed in which she was named as successor, she did not think it likely that she would survive Anne, and she doubted whether her son George was not of too despotic a nature 
loyally to recognize the limitations of sovereignty in england her opinion was that it would be better for the prince of wales as she called him that is the old pretender to change his religion and accept parliamentary government when however the act of settlement was formally presented to her she accepted the position and expressed a hope that her descendants would never give the english people cause to be weary of them all who stood nearer in point of blood to the english throne were excluded as roman catholics but sophia cannot be regarded as a very strong upholder of the protestant faith if the story be true that when a french agent asked what religion her daughter professed she answered she is of no religion as yet she was waiting to see what would be the creed of her future husband later when the aged electress still lived and it became doubtful whether she might not survive anne it is said that she used to declare that she would die happy if she could have queen of england written on her coffin but it was fortunate for england that her wish was not gratified and that the two deaths which followed each other within less than eight weeks in the summer of seventeen fourteen fell as they did the electress was in her eighty-fourth year and as there was some danger that the change of dynasty might lead to a rebellion it is evident that two successions coming close together would be still more dangerous it is somewhat difficult to estimate the real strength of the jacobite party exaggerated on the one side by the zeal of friends and accredited agents who wished to show that the party was strong enough to be up and doing it was exaggerated also on the other side by the real or feigned alarms of enemies who wished violent measures to be adopted against it certainly many who had been loyal subjects of william and of anne were prepared passively to accept the old pretender upon his sister's death many even might have taken active measures to secure his succession probably if the young man would have consented to change his religion a large majority of the english people would have argued that the stuarts had learnt lessons enough to make them refrain from any further attack on constitutional government yet the atmosphere of the despotic court in which the prince had been trained was not calculated to make him a good constitutional king the uses of adversity are sweet only if we accept its lessons and those cannot be taught who are determined not to learn at any rate it must be said in james's honour that he never for an instant entertained the proposal to renounce his religion the jacobites may be regarded as the extreme wing of the tory party their opponents used unfairly to say that all tories were jacobites and indeed an air of suspicion that they were in favour of the exiled family hung over all the more prominent and staunch members of the tory party the country gentry were mostly jacobites and it was asserted that at their gatherings they drank the health of the king across the water during the last years of the queen's reign a tory ministry was in power and its opponents confidently asserted that the object of the ministers was to restore the pretender when with the new reign these opponents came into power the tory ministers were impeached but though the facts elicited by the committee of the house of commons are quite clear as to the misconduct of the ministry with respect to the peace of utrecht and prove that they had sullied the honour of england 
there is no real evidence of a formed design to restore the pretender the evidence against the ministers bolingbroke and oxford falls under two heads their own letters and the statements of whig historians the latter if unsupported may be dismissed as of no value and with respect to the former it must be remembered that these ministers like many other prominent men of the day were anxious to stand well with both sides and therefore to the stuarts exaggerated or invented their services in the jacobite cause of the two oxford is generally acquitted of overt treason but as bolingbroke afterwards entered the service of the pretender and became his secretary of state this is generally taken as a proof that his treason began at an earlier date it is however only a presumption and not a conclusive proof it may be true according to the usual story that bolingbroke was scheming to restore the pretender that finding oxford would not go the whole length with him he determined to oust him from the ministry and that it was only the sudden death of the queen and the promptitude of the leading whigs which prevented the scheme from being carried into effect but if bolingbroke's heart had been in such scheming it is difficult to believe that he could not have done more the following feeling also actuated him if he was not in favour of the pretender he certainly wished to secure the continuance of his party in power but he knew that the elector george was likely to call the whigs to office and he had been constantly impressing upon oxford that gradually every position in the state whatever its seeming importance should be given to a tory so that when the new king came he might find the tories too powerful and united to remove as oxford was half-hearted in this scheme his rival at length resolved to drive him from the ministry the last week of queen anne's life was an exciting time in the early part of it there was a quarrel in the ministry which led to the ejection of oxford oxford had nominally higher power than bolingbroke holding the office of lord high treasurer he was what we should now call prime minister and bolingbroke seems almost from the first to have been jealous of him upon this ground and this jealousy was increased by the contempt which he did not care to conceal for oxford's understanding moreover oxford whose strength lay in court interest had the misfortune to offend one who had been his chief ally lady masham herewith he fell also under the queen's displeasure it is said that an open quarrel between oxford and his rival took place in the presence of the queen and lady masham and that anne dismissed oxford with contumely taking from him the white staff the badge of office and afterwards telling the council her reasons that he was unpunctual that she could seldom understand him and when she could that no dependence was to be placed on what he said that he was often tipsy and that his conduct to her was improper the question now arose who was to succeed oxford as lord high treasurer and after long deliberations it was decided to put the office into commission but before anything could be settled the queen was taken ill from which illness she never recovered she had long suffered from a complication of diseases gout and erysipelas now apoplexy followed we must now give an account of a man in whom at this time the queen was much inclined to trust 
Charles Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, was born in the year of the Restoration. He was a man of such winning manners that King William gave him the pleasant name of King of Hearts. He was not, however, made of the stern stuff that public life requires, and though he was a good deal mixed up with affairs of state, he was never happy in them. His timidity of character not only caused him to shrink from office, but made his conduct as a statesman uncertain. He early became a Protestant, though his family was Catholic, and this conversion brought the ill-will of King James upon him. He was one of the seven who signed the declaration inviting William of Orange to come over to England. As a friend to the Revolution, he became Secretary of State, with the title of Duke of Shrewsbury under William III, and though he more than once expressed a wish to be released from office, the king would not consent to it. Shrewsbury was accused of treasonable correspondence with the Stuarts, and though there was reason to believe that the accusation was not wholly unjust, William, with great magnanimity, would pay no attention to it. Shrewsbury's conscience, however, would not let him rest, and he not only retired from office, but leaving England, went to live at Rome. After five years' absence, he returned in Anne's reign, bringing with him an Italian wife. At first he acted with Marlborough and the Whigs, but the great Whig ladies, treating his wife with disdain, he was estranged, and Harley seized the opportunity to win him to the other side. He voted with the Tories on the Sacheverell trial. The Queen, liking him personally, appointed him Lord Chamberlain. Later, he was also made Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. In the crisis at the end of the reign, he assumed a very prominent position. Almost the last words that Queen Anne uttered were in giving to Shrewsbury the staff of Lord High Treasurer. Use it for the good of my people. Who it was in the council that proposed Shrewsbury's name for recommendation to the Queen is a point in dispute. Some say that it was Bolingbroke himself seeing that his own policy had become impossible, others that it was the work of two Whig lords who without summons but with the connivance of Shrewsbury himself had entered and taken seats at the council. Whatever may have been the veerings in Shrewsbury's career, to one point he was staunch at the end as at the beginning of it, his loyalty to the Protestant succession. If he had been guilty of treasonable correspondence with the exiled family, he had quite made up his mind now. With Shrewsbury, one of the original inviters of King William at the head of affairs, it was felt at once that the Jacobites had no chance. They themselves seemed to have been thoroughly taken aback. Every preparation was made to secure the Hanoverian succession, and when the Queen died, August 21, 1714, George Lewis, Elector of Hanover, was quietly proclaimed King of Great Britain in Ireland. It was said that a Jacobite bishop offered himself in lawn sleeves to proclaim King James III at Charing Cross, but his friends induced him to abstain from so mad a project. George I, the new King of England, was born in the year of the Restoration. He was therefore fifty-four years of age when he began his reign. He had been trained as a soldier, and had served in campaigns against the Turks, and in the late war had commanded in one campaign the army upon the Rhine. He was one of the Allies, though it usually required English money to set the Hanoverian as well as other German troops in motion. His son, 
afterwards George II, fought bravely at Udenarda, as he did later at Dettingen. Even their enemies never accused either George of want of courage. He succeeded his father as elector of Hanover in the last year of the seventeenth century, and was very much beloved in his own hereditary dominions. These he was very slow to leave when he heard that the English crown had fallen to him, and when he did arrive in England he was never popular with the English people. They looked upon him as a necessity, and perhaps were even thankful to him for saving them from the pretender and French influence in England. But how could they love a king who could not speak a word of their language? Sir Robert Walpole, who was prime minister during the greater part of his reign, could not speak German, so that the conversations between the sovereign and his minister were carried on in bad Latin. George I, like William III, was never happy in England, and always rejoiced when he could return to Herrenhausen, as his palace near Hanover was called. His manners in public were cold and phlegmatic, but it is said that in private he could be very sociable. Over his private life there hung a great cloud. When only just of age, he had married Sophia Dorothea, daughter of the Duke of Tell, but finding her guilty of unfaithfulness, he caused her to be shut up in a castle in the midst of a desolate heath, from the name of which she was called the Princess of Alden. For twenty-eight years she was shut up in this dreary place, surrounded by soldiers with drawn swords whenever she went forth. She died shortly before the king, whom she is said to have summoned to meet her at God's throne. George I was not liked in England, and his private life was not fair to behold, but he did not prove a bad king for the country. His mother's doubt about him was unfounded. So far from desiring to be despotic, he left the English people alone to govern themselves. His reign was a time of peace, a peace policy being emphatically that which the king as well as Walpole and his supporters wished to pursue. The material prosperity of the country went forward with great strides during the thirty years which followed the accession of the House of Hanover. Happy, says the proverb, is the nation that has no history. This interval seems barren in our annals, but on that very account it was doubtless a better time for people to live in. In all other reigns, from William III to Victoria, the national debt has increased. It was the glory of George I's reign that in it alone the debt was diminished. End of section 19